Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. Hello there. <laughs> you know, this is so weird. Yeah. We act like we haven't been talking for 10 minutes. <laughs> Hello, Bill. How are you? Hi, hi. <laughs> hey, I'm kind of excited. I, I, you can tell that. I, I, I think it's time for us to introduce a new theme into Ordinary Life. And I would like to give Holly Hudley credit with uh, coming up with the final way of expressing it. Uh, that's only because I was kind of being snarky and then you loved it and I did love it I did love it I uh so here's a behind the scenes thing um I'm just about finished reading it injures the Christian archetype book Mm. and I think that that and also reading ego and archetype kind of Mm. Uh, rereading ego and archetype kind of sparked me on um, something that um, I want to do in in teaching, and that is um, acknowledge that everything is myth, to continue in a more active, energetic way, deconstructing dogma. Mm. I mean, God, our country needs that. Heck yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, I've been thinking over and over and over, um, and the um, the poet from Kentucky, that you gave me a book of his. Um, from Kentucky? Yeah, I think Wendell Berry? Yeah, Wendell Berry. Okay. Okay. Yeah, Wendell Berry. I I couldn't remember his name. Wendell Berry. I I heard Wendell Berry in like a two-hour interview with Bill Moyers one time. It was a magical kind of time. I wish I could resurrect that conversation. And and in that interview, uh, Wendell Berry said, everything is sacred. Mm -hmm. We have just desecrated much of it. Mm. I'd love to find that quote and put that alongside of the one we have by Alan Watts mm. at the masthead, mm-hmm. uh, because I think it is our opportunity, our responsibility, our work to reclaim the sacredness of everything. So yes. we're going to begin a new theme Sunday. Uh, I'm going to teach by myself Sunday. And it will the the title of the talk is um, is God still dead? Hmm. Hmm. Which idea came for me, for me to me while attending a Roman Catholic mass in London, England? Hmm. That's interesting. Long, while long wait, wait. story yeah. there. Okay, so come on Sunday to hear the story. Yeah, I'll tell you a it. little bit of it okay. now, but okay. Yeah. Um we we Sherry and I had been to London twice before and had really, really done all of the London things. We'd done all the touristy things, we'd even rode a two-decker tourist bus all over the city and 
we'd been to all the places you're supposed to go, gone to theater and just did a lot of, we've done a lot of wonderful things in, in, in uh, London, attended theater and opera and did stuff that we just, just supposed to do. That was when we were much younger. And so we were ended up there with a choir this time because they were singing even song in uh, St. Paul Cathedral. And our hotel was literally, I mean, literally across the street from St. Paul's. And um, St. Paul's is on a place of property in London called Ludgate. I, I think they pronounce it differently than that hill. And so we just take it a walk through the city and we came across a church that was designed by Christopher Wren. Yeah. Christopher Wren did like 60 churches in London. And he was this incredible architect. And he, and he did <clears throat> the beginning of St. Paul's Cathedral. He didn't finish it. So it's this little church. Looked like a storefront, practically. Hmm. Uh, and it set a sign, Church of St. Martin of Ludwig, designed by Christopher Wren. I thought, well, let's go in. So as we went in, this guy who looked like an usher said, we're about to begin Mass. Would you like to stay? Sure. So we joined about 10 other people and attended an in-English Roman Catholic Mass mm -hmm. in this church, which I'm sure was designed originally to be a Church of England church. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. it was mm -hmm. now Roman Catholic. They were having a Roman Catholic service in this church. Huh. And uh, it, was, it was interesting. Um, and I was thinking, what do these people think about the God that they claim to be affirming and is that God still around? Yeah. Hope not. Yeah. Yeah. He's the cos the cosmic soup stirring God. Um yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, there, you know, it's funny every time I listen to liturgy, I think I said this um maybe even last week, but the every time I listen to liturgy, I have to do the work of retranslation. And um, you know, I'd love to be at the place where I can just kind of let it like wash over me if you will and not have to work so hard uh which means that i still have some work to do and accepting that it's all myth that there's nothing to retranslate that it's just words metaphors you know words are just metaphors for what we are pointing to around us um but yeah it's much easier to um let that happen let it wash over me when i hear it in another language <laughs> i i i think that you know I am going to say uh, that I think we should use different creeds. I think language yeah. does matter. And I think that most people have been in the Western world have been so educated in duality that asking the average parishioner churchgoer to do that kind of translation is asking too much. Mm -hmm. I think we should use different language. Yeah, I would love to see that that revol revolution happen, you know, so there is um, there it is. There is someone wrote um, who was it? I believe it was Bell Hooks, um, who she just died in December of last year, uh, wrote that what is needed is a language revolution. You know, mm -hmm. we 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 need language to match up with these ideas of paradox, these ideas of non-duality. Um, we need language to match up with our ideas about love and about one another. 
And, and, and so her premise is that if we get a language revolution, we will have a thought and behavior revolution. Um, I thought that's a really powerful language is our powerful tool as human beings. You know, mm-hmm. it is, it's our powerful tool. I had a seminary professor who ranted about two things. They were not having a daily spiritual practice and turn signals, by the way. Because <laughs> it was before and cars were invented. Well, That's it, why. No, it wasn't. <laughs> um, but he ran it against people using the word church to refer to a building. Mm. He hated that. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because he said church refers to a community of people. If you're going to really be someone who claims to respond to the teachings of Jesus, Jesus would not have understood church as a building. Yeah. You never used the word. He never used the word. Right. As far as we know. Yeah. And the other thing that he ran it against, this is in 1963. There was a, a earthquake in the theological community in 1963 caused by a guy named John A.T. Robinson. He published a little book called Honest to God. Mm. And in that book, he proposed that there be a generation of people who did not use the word God. Mm-hmm. You've said that before, and I um, would love to see us try. I've done it. Yeah. I, I still think use I, it. I, yeah. I think I have broken myself of using the word. What word? God. I just played a trick on you. Um, (laughs) I um, think that that would be a wonderful practice. It's kind of, okay, this is a weird relation, but because I'm reading so much of her work, there's a a woman named Reverend Thandika. She's a Unitarian minister who writes a lot about um, justice, race relations, and racial justice. And it's kind of the opposite of what you're saying, but she, um, you know, uh, white Americans are not called white Americans. They're typically just called Americans, right? Whereas black Americans are called black or African Americans. Asian Americans are called Asian Americans. And we can get into categories, right? Of Filipino, Japanese, Chinese, Americans, et cetera, so on and so forth. So she challenges, people to use the word white when referring to white Americans. So I would refer to you as a white American rather than just American, right? And I think what it gets to the point of language mattering that how we specify something or not builds a whole relationship around words. So in the context of um, Americans and race, we think that um, being white American is just normal right? In the same way Mm -hmm. that we would think that the word God is ubiquitously understood by everybody to whom we use that word. So, you know, I love this. I love there's a playfulness around that, right? Around using language in ways that our culture doesn't expect because it at least gets somebody to kind of go, wait, what? And I wonder if that pause, those little interruptions of thought, of just habituated thought, can just, you know, we have these pathways in our brain. I think of it like just kind of rerouting the pathway a little bit, just kind of going, oh, I just had to go a different way to get to that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so when you said that, I love that. I'm going to take that on as a challenge. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try to 
train myself to refer to other people who are Caucasian as white Americans mm -hmm. instead of American. That That's a wonderful thing. What I thought about, I had this memory that drug me back to my childhood. <clears throat> and the woman who raised me, Ruth Harlan, African-American woman, which in my childhood we referred to as a colored person. Mm -hmm. Johnson & Johnson, when I was a child, came out with a Band-Aid that was labeled flesh-colored. Flesh-colored. And Ruth said, when I talked about that, I said something about, oh, we got some flesh-colored Band-Aid. She just looked at me and said, honey, who's flesh? Mm, that's exactly right. Yeah. And that was so good. I must have been eight or 10 years old yeah. when that happened. But yeah. boy, it made an impression on me. Yeah. There's a whole entire large segment of the population in America who knows exactly what it is to be othered, right? And right. as white Americans, we don't experience that very much. And and there's some reading that I've been doing about um, othering. So each and every one of us is an other, right? You are other than me. You are also not other than me. So there's being othered, which is to be isolated, to be um, experienced unbelonging, to be experiencing um, being out of the group, being out of the accepted dominant group, if you will. And then there's retranslating other into the sacred other, which is what I think Martin Buber's whole philosophy is about, right? How, how do we tr use this word other, not as something that's distinct and outside of us, but that is distinct from us, but also not distinct from us. So this reworking around, what do we mean when we say other? Do we mean sacred other or do we mean different other, different and strange other? And, and to recognize that each of us is a different and strange other to someone else, if that makes sense. And when we can recognize mm -hmm. that, we can also build our muscles of compassion around how we reference people as other. I'm a different and strange other, just like you're a different and strange other. And there's a sacredness in that to go back to Wendell Berry's quote, right? That mm -hmm. everything and everyone is sacred. You know, just in the last couple of weeks, one of the men who has had an enormous impact on my life died. Mm. And that's Frederick Beekner. Oh, I didn't know he died. Yes, he passed away. And Frederick Beekner um <clears throat> gave a series of lectures i think he gave them at yale mm -hmm. a friend of mine attended those lectures and bought them on cassette tapes and gave them to me mm. and then beatner turned those lectures into a book called the sacred journey mm-hmm I was reading that book, listening to those lectures, when I met a woman named Sherry Beeman. <laughs> and I gave her, on our second date, a copy of that book. And in the beginning, in the flyleaf of the book, I wrote to Sherry at the beginning. Wow. That's how confident I was about what I wanted. <laughs> but the book, the book, is still as relevant and beautiful a writing as you could add to your, this is a list of books I'm going to read every one, two or three years. The Sacred Journey by Frederick Buechner. B-U-E-C-H-N-E-R. Yeah. Those of yeah. you who don't 
It's a good book. Have you ever read it? I haven't read The Sacred Journey. I I, ju- I am just learning that he died. I, it looks like he just died on August 15th, last yeah. Monday. Yeah. yeah. Um, I have a couple of books by him, none of which I can recall the title of right now. But um, And I've read kind of snip, you know, essays or snippets or things about him. But what? Wow. I That's- used to brag that I owned everything that he had written, and I do indeed have a bookshelf, which is uh-huh. a yard long of all of his books until I just quit buying them because a lot of them seem to be repetitious of things. Maybe publishers wanted to keep his name and stuff alive, so they kind sure. of recast a lot that he did. He wrote not only um, books in the religious spiritual genre, but he also wrote at least three, maybe four novels. Mm. Um, And um, he suffered from an evaluation among the writing community that he was too religious to be taken seriously as a Mm. novelist. Mm. And he was too uh, much of a novelist to be taken seriously as a theologian. So he was kind of in two camps at once, but... um, his novels were, they, they were not the best things I've ever read, but I'm glad I read them and mm-hmm. I'm glad I own them. So, yeah. It's interesting. There's now this rise in kind of the spiritual memoir, if you will, that's becoming a really popular genre of writing. And I wonder how he would fit into that, that genre. You know, I, it's funny how some people sort of preempt things. <laughs> Um, and that spirituality seems to be something that's written into the fiber of many, many, many books and stories, fiction and nonfiction alike. Uh, And I find that interesting. You know, there's an ethos that's, that must be happening that people are asking questions. What, what is, what, you know, even when we think about what, um, gosh, Brian Green, who's a physicist who writes the books on uh, kind of accessible ideas about science and physics. He he also dips into the kind of meaning of things and how that sort of personal autocosmological narrative shapes, gets shaped by mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just, I think that's interesting that he may have preempted a genre that has become more and more common. Mm-hmm. Well, I think also that one of the things that we can share with each other is um, how we make sense of our own journey. Yeah. And um, that may be that we, that may be a lot that we talk about. And I want to say up front that I don't think either one of us have a a very clear outline about what this path is that we're going to take we're just going to start off and see what happens mm-hmm. being guided by Edinger and by John Sanford and by some additional things in the gospel of John that we've not touched on yet they will also fit um, in there but um, if it's all myth how do we make sense of our own journey and how do we appropriate what Edinger calls the Christian archetype yeah and and find ourselves in that story this is funny um this yes i think that's the autocosmological piece right who am i in this grand expanse of unfolding reality 
but my kids, um, they're all basically teenagers now. And two of them before school this morning, <laughs> we're talking about whether reality is real, whether we're living in a simulation or not, whether this is just a, a projection or whether it's an illusion. And I kept saying to them, well, does any of that matter? If, if it's an illusion, it's still our reality. If it's a dream, it's still our dream. If it's a projection, it's still our projection, you know, so even if it's not real, it's still our reality. And it's the one we're called to be in. And they were like, mom. <laughs> but I think they were getting at the heart of that, that question, that wonderful human question, what is the meaning of life, right? And how, how do we live into that meaning? Um, but I guess the more and more I arrive at a place, the more and more I think, well, reality is wherever we are, whether it's a dream or not, it's, it's a, it's the reality we're in, you know? Um, Alan Watts would say it's all a game. Yeah. That's what, that was another one of their questions. What if our planet is just a game for somebody else's planet? I said, well, if it is, it's our game. Like It's our game, but <laughs> yeah. it is, and it's a game. Yeah. You know, I've also uh, found myself going back and, and rereading a lot of Alan Watts because I think one of the things that Alan Watts has to offer us is that he is really good at being able to teach non-duality. Mm -hmm. And um, in, in doing, I know people get scared of this word, but I think it's a word that we need to use a lot going forward. We got a lot of stuff to deconstruct. Yeah. And, and deconstructing is not a bad thing to do. No, it's not. Um, I'm... I'm really concerned about things that are going on in the political realm, particularly I am concerned about how there's been a wedding, not, I mean, if this is just what's making the news. Mm -hmm. and so, so, so much of um, Christian language and symbolism is being co-opted by the far right as a political tool. And yeah. that's just about as wrong as it can be. Yeah. The rise we, of need to we need to deconstruct that. Oh, gosh, yeah. The rise of Christian nationalism is quite possibly, well, I don't know. It's pretty terrifying because there's such an edge of violence um, contained in it. You know, um, I sent you a text yesterday that said, um, oh, my gosh, Houston had a gun buyback day. And it was held at uh, Wheeler Baptist Church in Third Ward. And uh, they interviewed some people who were turning in their guns. And it was so interesting listening. So many people were uh, saying, oh, it's just a gun I haven't used in 30 or 40 years just lying around. I'm okay with giving it back. And my, I was like, well, do they have five other guns at home that they're not giving back? And one guy, and so for giving back their guns, they got gift certificates for $150. And one guy said, I'm going to take my $150 and buy a new gun, get some more magazines and teach my grandson how to shoot. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I thought, oh, this is really productive. You know, I mean, it's a symbolic gesture to say, we're going to have a gun buyback. We want guns off the street, out of the hands of 
but even just in Texas alone. So it's at a church to promote a kind of nonviolence. And the message seemed to have been lost on many of the participants. Uh, half of them seemed to think that like, we need guns off the street. We need less gun violence. I, I support this. The other half was like, oh, this is just one of my many guns and I plan to go buy more. Like this isn't gonna stop me from using guns. And then the meta question is those who show up are not the ones who are really the problem. You know, they might be, have hunting guns or sport, right. you know, you know what I mean? And so it's the ones yeah. that that have the guns that they want to have for personal safety and could actually use them against other people that aren't showing up. Point being that this relationship between violence and church and uh, and guns is ginormous even maybe especially in Texas, but it is such a strong relationship. I had a friend who used to work at a church in Katy and he said on Sunday, they had gun raffles at the church. Yeah. You become a member, you get entered into a gun raffle. At the church. At the church. Right. So have I told you my, have I told you my 4th of July story? No, I don't know, maybe. So on the 4th of July, the woman I married to announced during the day, I want to go see some fireworks. Mm -hmm. And I said, I am not driving to Eleanor Tinsley Park on the 4th of July in Houston this hot day to see fireworks. And she said, well, we could go to um, the museum area where they're going to have the the symphony plays the 1812 over to her and they have a real cannon and they have fireworks. And I said, okay, we could do that. But I think you're going to be disappointed. So we drove, came down here to the church, which uh -huh. is within easy walking distance of the park. And we walked over and we walked up on the knoll and we sat down and there were three groups of, uh, there was a lot of people there, a lot of people. But to my right was a Mexican-American family, and then mm -hmm. us, a white American couple. And then to the left, an African-American couple with their three precious little girls. And it just was magical in that we all just started talking to each other mm -hmm. and enjoying each other and bantering, and the girls were coming over. And it was a wonderful kind of time and I was thinking, man, this is so great. I'm glad I live in this diverse city and have this kind of opportunity and blah, blah, blah. But the fireworks never happened. And people began to drift away and, and so we, we came home. And because I don't turn on the TV and I don't listen to the news, I had no idea of what had happened that day in Ohio where a group of people at a 4th of July gathering mm -hmm. had experienced death at a mass shooting. And I thought, that could have happened to us. Yeah. That could have happened right here with us because there's a great gathering of people. It would have been a great opportunity for some idiot with a AK-47 to just come in and mow people down. Yeah. And Holly, in... Cornwall, the thought never crossed my mind. Hmm. There's no gun violence in that country. It's certainly not the widespread problem that it is here. You know, there was, Absolutely. yeah, there was some report 
from Iceland, I believe, about like the one gun death in the last 25 years. And it was such a huge deal, such a huge deal as it should be, right? But we live in this space where we think it's normal. And gosh, I think about uh, Viktor Frankl so much, how we normalize abnormal situations and then have abnormal responses. And how we, listen to this, it gets even crazier. We have had people here at St. come into St. Paul's and ask about our gun policy. And our gun policy is no, no guns. You can't bring a gun in here. I don't care what the, what it says in the outside is you don't, you don't do it. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, I have said things in class about my concern about this. And I've gotten emails and even a couple of people in person, but mostly emails saying, I'm a strong Second Amendment right person. I believe I have, now this is the language, a God-given right to bear arms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's about as screwed up a theology as you could possibly have. Yeah, it is. It's 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 normal. It builds on it, 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 abnormal. <laughs> it builds on that same mindset that said God gave me the right to take your land. Yes, that's right. Which is manifest destiny, which is the founding idea of this country. City on a hill, manifest destiny. We are the sort of saviors of the world. By we, I mean white colonists. You know this idea that. Ah, I mean, it just, it's, we've got such a long way to go back in terms of deconstructing that even precedes the colonization of America, of the entire North and South America, you know, um, it, it, it goes back to Europe. It goes back to what was happening in the, in, in the, between, in the war of church and state and, you know, I mean, I think we've got such a long human history to deconstruct. Well, it, let me yeah. let me let me be clear that making mm-hmm. the sacred journey sacred is saying that there is worthwhileness to be found in the teachings. I'm going to say of Jesus because that is the given religion of the Western world. Mm-hmm. And we're just going to say that we. I, I intended for. A, to talk a lot more about Edinger today, but we didn't do it. Anyway, how did that happen? Uh, the, it, it, the, the, the teaching of Jesus could be the light of the world. Yeah. If that light reflects love and compassion and justice and equality. Yeah. That is that is the kind of light this world desperately needs. Absolutely. So I want to be in the in in that Jesus camp. And one of the things I was going to say about Edinger, now that I've done your assignment. And read that book. And I, uh, you know, when I was in graduate school and early in my career, I read a lot of Carl Jung. I don't think I remember that Jung was evidently as obsessed with Christianity as he was. Hmm. You've read more Jung than I have by far. But um, there are certainly a lot of people who are Jungians who apply Jung to the Christian archetype oh, the christian myth yeah he himself he himself wrote a lot about it mm-hmm, i mean mm-hmm. it's it's stunning if if you're if anybody who is listening to this if you live in the houston area 
you can go to the Jung Center on Montrose. It's kind of at the Mon intersection of Montrose and Bend and go in their bookstore mm -hmm. and just look at the volumes of books that Carl Jung authored. Yeah. It is overwhelming. Yes, it is. Agreed. There's, he, he has authored so many books and then not to mention them, even more books have been written about him or about Jungian's depth psychology. You know, I mean, just the, the you could fill an entire giant library with books by and about Jung, <laughs> I think. And which means to say that like he himself is a bit of a Christ archetype. Like he transformed the thinking of of an entire field, of an entire model of, of, of considering human behavior and human ideology, human individuation and human Christology, if you will. But mm -hmm. uh, so it's interesting to think about it that way. So much has been written about Jung that he himself may represent the, a, a Christ archetype. Well, you can talk about that some Sunday. Ah, and I'll there's... follow your lead. <laughs> you bring up the fact that there's more than one Jesus. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, I just think so, that you know that's the beauty of this journey is that there is the whole point of Edinger's work is there is a Christ within. There is that movement within, uh, that radical love. It has always and will always be in us. It is, so uh, my, my, my argument on Sunday will be that we, as people who live in the West, in Western civilization, we have inherited a, an ideation about God and about Jesus. Everybody has, whether they've ever walked into the doors of a church or not. Um, it's just in the culture. It's in the DNA. Nobody in the Western culture escapes knowing something about Jesus, primarily because the, uh, of Easter and Christmas. Mm -hmm. The two major holidays are in, in the Western world are Easter and Christmas. Um, Christmas is the only holiday in the United States that is both a religious holiday and a federal holiday. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And a commercial our, holiday. Yeah, and a commercial. Well, that's our religion. Yeah, anyway. yeah, yeah. All right. Oh, man. All right. All right. Well, I think we have introduced the theme. Yes, we have. And uh, new quotes and images forthcoming. I have to get my house tinted this weekend because we have your termites. house what tinted. We have drywood termites. Are you going to live in it? We would die if we stayed here. Um, so we have to take. That's why I said I need a couple weeks to like go get back. Where to, you, I, what you really have to move out? Yeah, we and we have to take all the food out, all the plants, all the animals, undo our beds. So that everything can kind of fumigate. It's uh, we have a spot where drywood termites keep coming back, so we have to get it fumigated. It's a pain in the arse. Oh wow! I've yeah. seen houses where that's been done. How long does it take? Three days. 
the same amount of time it took Christ to rise from the dead. <laughs> okay. Well, well, I put you on my prayer list for two reasons. <laughs> I have come up during this talk. You have three boys, boys yes. that are teenagers. Yeah. 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 That, that <laughs> reason enough to list. send me to the sanatorium. <laughs> that deserves a listing and you're having your house picked it. I gotta go. All right. See you later. This has been fun. Okay. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.